You're listening to Writers on Writing, a show about the art, craft, and business of writing. I'm Barbara DeMarca Barrett. Today, my guest is Mark Tavani. Mark started his publishing career in 2000 with Ballantine Books and spent over 23 years with Penguin Random House, Bantam, Del Rey, and G.P. Putnam's Sons. He edited bestsellers and award winners across numerous categories of fiction and nonfiction, including books by Jim Abbott, Steve Berry, C.J. Box, Justin Cronin, Clive and Dirk Kussler, Jeffrey Deaver, Lisa Gardner, Jack McCallum, Lisa Scodelline, Bill Simmons, and R.L. Stein. He recently joined the David Black Literary Agency, where he represents both fiction and nonfiction. Mark has a degree in creative writing from the University of Pittsburgh. He's an adjunct professor with NYU's School of Professional Studies and lives with his wife, his daughters, and a headstrong dog in Rutherford, New Jersey. Mark joined me to talk about what he's looking for, comps, book club fiction, memoir, ageism in publishing, why MFAs and the literary community involvement are important, how to know if an agent is the right fit, and so much more. And now for Mark Tavani. Mark, I am so glad to have you on. I, you know, I get publishers lunch and uh, I don't know when it was, a month or two ago, I saw that you had joined um, the David Black Agency, and um, needed to talk to you. I just needed to talk to you about making, you know, about so many things, but especially, you know, making the transition from editor to agent, because it seems that, to me, that agents have a more stressful job than editors, sort of like writers, where writers are trying to sell the agent, and the agent is trying to sell the editor, and the editor gets to choose, gets, you know, has a more relaxing time. So what made you decide to go the other way? Well, first of all, it's, um, it's great to be here and thank you for having me. Um, but, um, well, that's a really interesting, okay. So that's a really interesting way of kind of looking at it. So does the editor have the more relaxing job in the equation? I don't, I don't know. Um, I think what, what I, what feel like the big differences to me are that when you are the editor, you are, um, you're working for the publishing house and your job is to make sure you build a list as an editor that works for that publishing house. So you have your taste and you have your sensibility, but you're always conscious of what the house needs, um, you know, for its year, um, for its future ambitions, whatever. And as an agent, you're absolutely right that there's this pressure to sell the publisher on the project, but at the same time, the list uh, your list as an agent is yours. And it's not that there's not that same feeling of like trying to fill a list that the the publisher is asking for. It's much more the list that you yourself are building. And one of the things that I think is really interesting and that's very interesting to me as I make this uh, leap is that when you're an editor, um, almost every, I think almost every um, editor I know has some room to work. Right. They have like a mandate of a certain set of books they're supposed to work on. Like maybe for one, it's commercial fiction. Maybe for one, it's big think nonfiction or maybe it's practical nonfiction or whatever. And you might have some range, but to some degree, you're going to be in a in a in a space that's been agreed to between you and your publisher. And as an agent, you might choose to limit yourself based on your tastes, but it is up to you. Right. Like you can go as wide as your ambitions and your tastes go. Um, if you think you can take something on, you can try. And then if the author signs with you, then you've got it. So I don't know. I wouldn't say the editor's job is easier. And I actually do think that as the industry becomes, you know, little by little more uh, more corporately run, I don't think it's easier. Um, so I don't think the agency job is um, more relaxing, but I do think there's um, there's a little more freedom in it. Hmm. Well, talk about what you look for uh, as regards fiction and nonfiction. Sure. 
I'm re- I've always been drawn to a really wide range of um, categories. So in the fiction space, I've worked on a lot of uh, different types of fiction, um, some very commercial fiction, thrillers and mysteries, um, also speculative fiction, science fiction, um, historical fiction. And um, I, as different as those things might be, I always find myself just drawn to great story in fiction, um, wh- whichever, whichever way it um, defines itself. In the nonfiction space, I have always been interested in a pretty, uh, you know, pretty wide range there as well, from history to some science to some sports um, and um, some memoir. So all of those things are interesting to me. So um, I don't do, I certainly don't try to do everything. There's a lot of categories like uh, practical nonfiction spaces and cookbooks, and I also don't do YA or middle grade. So there's a lot I don't do. Um, but in general, within the spaces of um, commercial fiction and nonfiction, I, I'm interested in a lot, a lot of different things categorically. So, so I'm also curious, like, do you do you look for space on your list? I mean, being a new agent at an agency may be a little different, but because you you talked a little bit about sort of the latitude as an agent uh, opposed right. to being an editor. But I mean, do you come at it from like something comes in and it's like your own personal loves, your own, your attraction, the space, or maybe you just took on a book like this, even though maybe you would love it at another time. You can't today because you just took one on like in that category, perhaps. I mean, how does that work? Yeah. So what you're describing there about making sure you don't kind of overlap things too much, that was something I felt a lot as an editor, because as an editor, you knew that you taking something on um, would affect other things on your list, right? Like it's very hard to publish two books that are similar at the around the same time equally well. So as an editor, I felt that pressure a lot. As an agent, I don't feel that pressure. So what leads the way for me is... Um, I want there to be something about the project that really speaks to me, that feels like personally interesting to me, because I think the author deserves to have that kind of energy coming back to them. Um, I don't think it should just be, um, I think I could sell this or the market seems to be in favor of this because that's not going to, that's not going to like, um, that's not going to create a conversation between me and the author. That's really helpful for the author. So um, I love to find something where an author has poured sort of their heart into it. And then I, when I read it, kind of respond uh, in that same emotional way um and in the nonfiction space it usually for me memoir i think works more like fiction where it really is about that um that emotional appeal but in some of the other categories of nonfiction that i work in more of an intellectual um resonance right where like an author is talking about a topic that is of interest to me in a way that i've never quite read before and i just feel parts of my brain lighting up I'm like, this is it, right? This is great. And that's why that's why I read, right? Like I'm I've always just been driven by my curiosity. And as an editor, that was really useful. And now as an agent, I think it's gonna be what leads me. You know, it's gonna be my my kind of like uh, my headlights as I as I figure out where I'm gonna where I'm gonna go. And so when I feel my curiosity buzzing in response to something I'm reading, it tells me. I mean, it's always hopeful. You never know for sure, but it tells me that other people might respond the same way. Um, like, I love how, you know, one of the most old fashioned things about books will always be that word of mouth is the best way to sell a book, right? We all know that feeling you read a book you love and then you tell, like, first, before you tell people, you have that feeling of, I want to tell people, like, I want to share this book with people. Um, a number of months ago, just for pleasure, um, I read a book called Breath by James Nestor. Um, it's a nonfiction book, and it is about breath. It is literally about how we do breathe, how we should breathe, um, what difference it makes to our bodies. Um, and I picked it up because a friend had told me it was really good. So word of mouth brought me to the book. And I I read it just because I wanted to. I didn't have any professional reason to read it. And I really enjoyed it. And then afterwards, I found myself just telling one person after another, like, let me tell you about this book I read. And I love when that happens because – this author became obsessed with the topic and he lived with it for years. Then he shared it with me, you know, and 400,000 other people or whatever. And then I felt compelled to share it with other people. And I, that's when I think books are at their best. So what I want to 
what really lights me up when I have the chance to take on a project is that feeling. Like, do I want to share this with other people? Do I, am I so glad I spent time around this thing? And if that's there, then I know, I know I've got to, I've, you know, I've got to try to connect with that author and see if I can take it on. Hmm. Well, you mentioned word of mouth and recently I read something where um, the writer Kathleen, Kathleen Schmidt, I think she writes a substack called Publishing Confidential. And mm -hmm. she wrote about how um, she didn't think reviews sold books. And I'm curious what you think about that, because same, you know, word of mouth for me is so much. I mean, I look at reviews, but if somebody tells me, I think this is something you're going to love, then I'll check it out. But how, yeah. how do reviews how, how do what do you think about reviews? I mean, have they lost their potency in terms of, you know, what they do for books in publishing or does it just depend on the review, the reader? Um, I, I think the short answer is yes, they have. Um, I think that um, I can, you know, I can remember um, in my earlier days of publishing that landmark review and the right periodical at the right time was absolutely make or break for a book. Um, it could it could it could change the trajectory not just of that book, but maybe an author's career. Um, and it didn't always work, but 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 there was a real reason to hope it could work. And in in more recent years, I feel like um, even that perfect review from NPR, New York Times Book Review, LA Times Book Review, uh, take your pick. It's still a wonderful feeling, and it's a wonderful validation for the author. But the, but when do we see it really carve out a new sales trajectory for a book? It's become um, it's become pretty infrequent. I published a, a nonfiction book back in April, and um, excellent book. The reviews were perfect, and including a couple really you know just really big, perfectly placed ones. New York Times Book Review and NPR were two of them, and um, you couldn't have asked for better in, as far as response to the author's work, and um, it didn't seem to make almost any difference um, to the number of copies sold. So one thing I've wondered about, and I, I, I can't say any of this for sure. It's just kind of my read on it from having been paying attention. Um, I, you know, a number of years ago now, I felt that change where the where people because of how they're buying books, they they read about books differently. Like mm -hmm. if if you think about um, buying a book online, you know, whether it's through, you know, uh, IndieBound or, or BNN.com or Amazon.com, if you're buying a book online, generally, I think the, the experience is that you know what you're looking for and you go online and you find it. And, and online, you know, search is really good for that purpose. They take you to the thing you know you want. What it's really bad for is discovery, like this accidental discovery. Um, and I, I feel like, and you can picture the New York Times book review many years ago. And it would be loaded with, um, you know, the reviews themselves. But all around them was this wallpaper of advertisements for other books. And the chance of you accidentally discovering a book was was high, you know, if, if you read that regularly. And I feel like that accidental discovery has gone away because I think the readership of the book review sections has gone down. And so I think the two things work together. But I think my feeling is that that leaves reviews in a place where they are um, they're less effective. Now, I do think uh, on the on a more positive side, I do love when we see people like um, media really making a you know a devoted effort to find new ways to talk about books. When you look at um, Book of the Day and NPR, like I think that's a great um, that's a great effort. Like every day, this this devoted um, you know uh, conversation with an author of a book really and like every day it's a different kind of book. Um, it's a totally different publisher. It's a different kind of interview. They, they switch the actual hosts of it around. And I think that's really good. And I think that it's great to see something like that happen. So I, I do think there are things that are happening, but I do think other things such as book clubs or social media have become the, the only real drivers of um, sales that we, that we notice regularly. Speaking of book clubs. So, yeah. <laughs> so I mean, we're going to talk about query letters off and on throughout. Sure. Talk, but, um, you know, agents apparently in that first paragraph of a query letter want to know what category you are, mm. your, your novel is um, in. And so there's, you know, there's literary, there's thrillers, there's dystopian, there's upmarket. 
why isn't book club fiction a category? I mean, why can't you just say, instead of picking one of those other categories, you say, and, you know, my 80,000 word novel is, you know, book club, blah, blah, blah. Yeah, no, that's a good question. And honestly, in my mind, it is. Like if somebody says to me, I wrote a novel, I think it's book club fiction. I know what they mean, right? <laughs> I, I think you know what they mean, right? I mean, to me, that means that it is a commercially accessible novel that is, um, you know, upmarket to some degree and, th and, and charged with theme. Like it, it's a novel that um, tells an accessible story, but also tries to say something. And that, that saying something makes it worthy of conversation, right? Like that's where the book club aspect is like, it's the kind of novel that is worth talking about. Right. Um, you know, I, like, for example, like I've worked on plenty of thrillers and I think there are, there are certain kinds of thrillers, very commercial thrillers where like, you couldn't call them book club because their purpose is not to engender conversation. Like it's to be enjoyed by the reader. And that's wonderful. I love those books, but it's to be enjoyed and then put aside. And that's, and that's perfectly fine. Uh, I think the whole thing to me about book club fiction is that it is a book that is built in a way where it, it aims to leave readers in a place where there's something to talk about afterwards. And to me, in my mind, if somebody put that in the first paragraph of their letter, I know what they mean. All right. Do you think you're unusual? <laughs> Are you unusual in that way? Do you think? I don't know. I mean, I think we all know what it means. I I think every editor I I know would know what I meant if I said that to them, right. If I pitched a book and I said, you know, sending you a novel, I, I think if this is book club fiction, I think they would say, yeah, I know what that means. So um, I don't know if it's officially recognized, but I think I think in the real world we all know what that means. Okay, I like that. <laughs> I think a lot of us like that. Um, so your background, you you have a degree in writing. You studied writing. So how did that lead to editing? Yeah. Okay. So I went to the University of Pittsburgh, um, oldest English department of the country, and I started in poetry. And I very quickly figured out I was not a poet, much as I much as I like poetry. It was not quite for me. And I moved over to fiction. And so I studied fiction. Um, and at the same time, I was working on the school newspaper, and that's how I really got my great introduction to nonfiction. But majoring in creative writing and specializing in fiction was, um, it was a perfect fit for me. I loved it. I had some, I had a number of great professors. Um, and one of the things you do in that program, and I'm sure many other programs, but I can only speak for, for Pitts, is that um, you, you go through a workshop program. For the class, you will be reading plenty of published work, but also you will be writing. Um, you will be writing stories, always stories. You know, there was never time for it to be a novel. That would happen more in an MFA program. But for undergrad, you would you would write stories, and then you would be working on a specific technique in that story. Like if you were working on like the first person voice, you might have to write a story that shows, you know, explores it to figure out what the challenges and opportunities of it are, and then you would share that story with the class. Right. And the class would critique it. So not only was the professor critiquing it, but the class was critiquing it in front of you. And that's the workshop program. And for me, I loved it. And I think that that has been really helpful for me as an editor, because when I'm working with an author, it is never lost on me how hard it is what I'm asking them to do <laughs> and how hard it is to receive criticism in the right way. Like when I when I work with an author on, um, you know, they've given me a first draft of a novel and I'm working with them on it to make it better. I have to say all of the hard things that I think the author needs to hear, right? All of that has to fit in that conversation, but I don't think it has to leave the author feeling despondent or heartbroken or misunderstood. So one of the things that I like to do um, is to begin with questions, right? So when we enter into the, the, the process of working on something together, I ask questions instead of saying you should have or why didn't you or whatever. It's more like when you made this choice, what was the goal? And so sometimes when we have that conversation, they say exactly what I thought they were going to say. And then I would say, okay, that's what I thought you were doing. But I have to say it didn't come through for me. How could we change it to make it work? Or sometimes, though, I'll say, what were you thinking with this? And I think they were going for something. And they'll surprise me. And they'll be like, well, I really wanted to achieve this. And I'll be like, oh, I'm glad I asked because I didn't I didn't see that. Now, how do we change it 
to make sure a reader can see that. Um, so that's one thing. Uh, another thing that I think can be useful is using what the author does well to help them deal with the things they're struggling with. So like, let's say this is just a, an example, but let's say the, the, the ending of a book needs a lot of work, right? The, the, the first half is just wonderful and charged with emotion and interesting and immersive. And then the second half just kind of feels too rushed or too thin or something. And instead of just saying this ending needs to be better go make it better, I feel like it can be much more useful to say, look how you did this in the beginning. This is, this is perfect. This is great. This scene had my attention completely. How can we apply some of that here? Like what's missing here that you had there? Because then you're, even as you're giving them the criticism, you're also giving them the compliment. Um, but I guess what I'm trying to say is that studying writing was the right thing for me. And even though I didn't become a writer, what it allowed me to do, I hope, is to be able to have a really fruitful and sensitive conversation with an author that doesn't skirt around the hard stuff. But it gets there in a way that's that's healthy and encouraging. Well, and hearing you talk about um, working with a writer and and the material, it sounds like books. You're not looking for a perfect book, like. And are there any perfect books? But when when you're queried and then you ask for pages, and then you ask for the manuscript, however it goes for you, um, it sounds like you don't expect. The book to be perfect i mean because then of course what would you have to do right i mean you have to do something <laughs> but well, I, no, mean, I think yeah I, I think you're right you're totally right i so first of all i think you're right in saying that is there really ever um a perfect book not really i mean could you say here's a a wonderful example of this kind of book sure of course um but i don't think books are actually meant to be perfect i just think they're meant to be the best they can be um but I do believe that if an author has, um, I like working on a book with an author, and I. But but the question is always when I read something, is it close enough that I can help them get there from here? Mm-hmm. Now, if I, I have definitely read you know books on submission where I think I can't do it, I don't have the plan, I don't see how, like I don't know how to, I don't know how to fix what I think is off here. And then you have to bow out because you're not going to be helpful to that author. But I do, I have no problem at all with a situation where an author has gotten, you know, pretty close to exactly what they were gunning for. And now I can step in and say, okay, let's take a look and how can we make the the pieces that need work better? Um, And I also think that it's hard for an author to know, like we in publishing are, are, are talking so often about the market. You know, the market changes regularly, but we all get used to, well, this quarter, this kind of book is up and this quarter, this kind of book is down. And we should push our authors more in this direction than that direction if we want them to find an audience and sell copies. So we're so well versed in this. I don't expect an author to be similarly well versed. If an author, an author has to go into that private place where they're just writing what they feel and what they're thinking about, if they become obsessed with category in the way we do, then I don't know how you can ever really mm-hmm. get get out outside your own head to write the book, right? So I think it's really okay and even healthy for there to be a relationship where I can step in at a certain point and say, okay, I see what you're going for. You're almost there. And now I can help you the rest of the way. So, you know, writers deal with this all the time. And I suppose you do to some extent before you send a work out to an editor. But, you know, writers are always like, when do I know it's finished? Like, when am I ready to query? When am I ready to send the manuscript? I mean, are there like, uh, I don't know, clues a writer can look at within themselves or the work to go, you know, I've done all I can do and now it's ready, but is it? Right. I think of, I mean, I think of especially fiction, nonfiction is a little different. I'll talk about that in a second. I think of fiction as being a little bit like a little bit like a block of marble and you can chip away at it to, you know, make a statue. But if you chip too much, there's nothing left, right? Like if you, if you kind of tinker at it so much that it kind of crumbles in your hands, then there is, there is no story left to share with other people. So I think you have to be wary of that. But I, I think the main thing is this, it isn't time to send it out if there are things you think aren't as best as they can be, right? Like you don't want to be so, so eager 
that you're like, well, I know I could make that better and that better and that better, but you know, it's time. That's not the time. But it, I, so I think it is okay for you to send out and have an objective reader say, hmm, it's not quite there. That's fine. But I think you need to have arrived at that point where you're like, that's the story I meant to tell. Like that, that now shows what I set out to do. And even if I, I wish I could do this or this or this, I'm not leaving it with problems that I, I could solve if I took another few weeks or months, right? So I think it's really important that you get it to the best place you can. If you have done so and you send it out, even if you get rejected, you can say, well, it, that was an honest bet. I really thought I was there. When you, when you get reviews um, for a book, a bad review is always troubling, annoying, disheartening. But the worst kind of review is one that attacks something you knew wasn't right with the book. That's hard because you're like, I mean, and I'm speaking from an, the editor or agent experience more than the author experience, but I think it must apply to authors as well. If you worried something wasn't right, and then you get this chance to be reviewed in a good periodical and somebody says, well, you know, this was problematic about the book. That's a heartbreaker because you're thinking, I could have fixed that because I, I sensed it. But if they criticize something you believe in 100%, there's nothing you can do. Like you had a different vision for the book than the reviewer did. Um, now, on the nonfiction side, when I work a narrative nonfiction or memoir, I do think it's a little clearer than it is with fiction when something is there. Um, in the narrative nonfiction space, for example, the story has to be fully told, fully sourced, all of that, but it can't overstay its welcome. So if we've got it to a place where it is full and clear, but not kind of excessively long or um, full of itself, that's probably where you need to be with narrative nonfiction. So I do find, find I do find helping an author with narrative nonfiction or memoir is it's not an easier job, but it's easier to know when it's done. Mm -hmm. Fiction, I feel like you could always turn it one more way and there'd be something interesting there, but you've got to instinctually feel that moment where you're like, I think that's it. I think we've gone as far as we should go and now we need to put this out in the world. Mm -hmm. have, um, have lengths of books changed? Are books getting shorter or is it more acceptable for a novel to be I don't know, 70,000 words, whereas it used to be, what, 100,000? And then you were in a sort of a good area? Yeah, I think that's right. I think in general, acceptable lengths have come down. Um, not that surprising when we feel like people's attention spans are not mm -hmm. the longest they've ever been. I mean, you know, the smartphone is obviously the enemy of the book. Um, and, and streaming TV is also a challenge because, you know, when, when your person who does love books gets to Friday night and they can finally relax after staring at a computer all week, are they going to reach for the book instead of just kind of putting on, you know, whatever's kind of uh, happening on Netflix right then? So I think those are challenges. And so I think attention spans have driven word counts down. But I would say that I think I think in some categories, uh, a, a longer word count can still really can still work. Historical fiction, for example. I think you, you know, I, I have published some historical fiction that is well above 100,000 words. And if it, as long as it doesn't drag, it doesn't feel wrong, I think that's acceptable. I think there are some kinds of nonfiction, um, you know, biographies um, where they can be longer. But I think when we look at fiction, I do think it is happening that, like, especially commercial fiction, where the idea is for it to be enjoyable, I do think it's happening that people are reading differently than they used to and the shorter word count and also shorter chapters in general are appreciated um, by the author. I don't think that's an inherently bad thing. I think they're really good short novels. Um, I think the, the only thing I'm wary is when novels are um, thinner than they should be to be rewarding. Um, so that, that would, that would worry me if I felt like, um, if a, if a book wasn't delivering all that it could because it was trying to be short, but if it's just a good short novel, theoretically, I'm 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 okay with that. Good with that. Um, I also noticed there's a, a, so much content on um, on TV where that has been taken from books or short stories, mm -hmm. and so is that something else agencies are doing or looking at a at a work going? Well, you know, maybe this is going to not do really well in the marketplace, but it might do really well in Hollywood. Yeah. So 
definitely something we think about. Um, we know it, there's a, I've always found it kind of funny, the relationship between Hollywood and publishing, because we think of Hollywood as the people with all the money um, and all the, all the marketing capabilities. And they look at us and we're the people with the content. And mm -hmm. there's a validation that Hollywood often seeks from being able to say, based on the best-selling book, right? And I, I just think it's funny only because we think of ourselves as kind of like the mom and pop shop next to their <laughs> their corporate effort. But I also, I also understand the validation they're talking about. When content is based on strong, you know, literary, whether fiction or nonfiction, base um it makes a difference like there's just there's a there's a thoroughness to the world building there's a deepness to the characters i think you can feel it one of the other interesting things is that a lot of great movies um have been made off of short stories sometimes short stories are easier or they seem to me i've, I've made very few movies um but but it seems easier to make a, a movie off of a short story as opposed to a novel, which can sometimes be so complex, you have to cut it way back um, to make it work as a movie. Um, but yes, I think that we, you know, we on the agenting side and, and publishers think this way as well, that we watch the trends in Hollywood, whether it be, um, you know, big screen or um, streaming, we, we try to keep track of what's working there and which content we, we have or we could have that would lend itself to that because when it works, that can be such a, such a boost uh, for a book and for an author. Before we bring Mark back on, a few words about Patreon. Consider visiting our Patreon page at patreon.com slash writers on writing. A few dollars a month goes far in helping us to continue bringing the show to you. And there are perks for patrons. You can also help the show in indie bookstores by buying your books at bookshop.org slash shop slash writers on writing where you will find books by authors who've been on this show as well as other books that we like and now back to mark tavani well you mentioned short stories and i i've noticed that too um it seems easier to take a short story i mean sometimes with novels there's a lot of kind of voiceover and you're like oh okay this came from a novel and you know they have to fill in but, but short story collections are so incredibly hard to to place with an agent. Um, so why is that then? I mean, people are reading short stories, right? I mean, I think that I do think it's been an accepted thing for a long time that um, stories um, are um, stories were really um, if you go back many decades, short story collections were big. They were so big that oftentimes, the publisher would be excited to get the um, the short story collection and to get it, they would publish the novel. Um, and then, you know, decades later that reversed, right? And it became a situation where um, an author might have both and the, the publisher would want the novel and the agent would be trying to interest them in the short story collection. Um, I, it just became harder to, to sell them at a large number and to bring in a wide readership, you know, to it. What what I find interesting about that a little bit is we we're just talking about the short attention spans. You would think maybe that would lend itself to more interest in short stories, but actually, I think, and I this is just a this is just my read on it, and there might not be any real basis to this, but I feel like short stories are actually more challenging mm -hmm. um, for the reader. The novel does more of the work for you, where it gives you kind of all of the detail, and then it often goes to some extent to tell you what it means. Whereas the short story almost always leaves you in a place of mystery where you're not sure what has been said and you kind of find yourself going back to be like, wait, what, what was happening here at the end? And while that was in fashion once many, many decades ago, I, I feel like that is actually harder for today's reader and it, it catches less and it leaves them with, it catches their attention less and then it leaves them with less. That's, that's my feeling. Hmm. That's interesting. I haven't heard that before, but that makes sense. It makes total sense. Because, yeah, short stories, I mean, so much is off the page. Right. Exactly. But then when you do see a short story turned into a successful movie, it can be so great. Like when um, the movie Arrival, I happen to really like. Um, so, you know, Ted Chang's short story, right. it was turned into that movie. Certainly didn't feel to me like there was any shortage of content. I mean, there was so much for that movie to say. And that movie, you know, stayed with me long after. Um, 
but based on a short story, right? Not a full novel. Interesting. Okay, so I have a maybe a strange question. Okay. <laughs> and it comes from a conversation the other day I had with an author a friend and I, we were talking about the idea that the gender of the agent you're querying for a novel might matter um, because of what you're querying. And I'm curious about that. I mean, um, like an agent might say on manuscript wish list or query tracker or the website that they're looking for certain topics, yeah. themes, but then the the theme maybe goes too far or the topic goes too far. And, and really specifically the author I was talking to um, is a horror writer trying to transition into thrillers. And mm -hmm. in his thriller, he has, I think, rape and incest and a bad mother. And his agent is a young woman with children. And she's like, a mother would never do that. And he's like, let me tell you about my mother. And so, so he was saying, you know, I don't think she's the right agent for the book because of her experience. And maybe an older agent or a male agent would would mm. understand more what I'm trying to do. So what do you think about that? Do you think it shouldn't matter, but it does matter or it does matter? And who you're querying, you might want to think about your material and how it might resonate with that agent. Mm -hmm. So. I don't know that it comes down to just from what I'm hearing. I'm not sure that it comes down to purely a, a gender question because I do think, you know, men and women can read whatever they want. So some people gravitate towards this and some will gravitate towards that irrespective of their gender. But what I do think is it does matter a lot that the agent feels a connection to your material. So, so what I was saying at the very beginning was I'm always looking for that book that resonates with me and that I want to share with other people. Now, I so um, there can be categories where, like theoretically, I'm interested in that category, but if somebody has um, something that goes to a place in that category that I am not comfortable with, and I'm not a squeamish reader, but there are some things that I just would rather not do, right? Like I just don't want to read about, and you know, it has to be understood that if you're going to work with an author, you might have to read their material many times, right? Mm -hmm. Whether you're their agent or their editor, you might have to stick around that project for a long time, and if you do. You've got to be able to not only bear it, but really get into it enough that you're giving back to the author. And so the the situation you're describing, I, I get that. Um, if an author who I work with came to me and said, I'm writing something different, it's much edgier, there would be that chance that I would read and say, I, I I'm not your person for this. I don't want to, I don't want us to lose what we're building here. But if I if I can't genuinely enjoy it or connect with it, this is going to be a problem that's going to hold you back mm -hmm. because I won't be coming from my heart when I pitch it. So, I, so again, I don't know if it's gender based exactly. I know I know plenty of female editors who who can um, read the darkest stuff you could find, <laughs> and I know plenty of male um, editors who just kind of have a gentler take on what they want to spend time with. Um, mm -hmm. But I do think it really matters that your agent connects and is okay with the material you're putting into your book. Otherwise, I think it will hold you back. Mm, that's interesting. Well, I, I'm curious. There's some questions from listeners. Sure. Asked, and one of them has to do with the, um, of course, the question of comps, which comes up all the time. You know, like, yes. Is a comp, can, does, should it be two, no more than two years away from what you're doing, 10 years can it be a movie and a book? Can it be a TV yeah. series and a book? Can it be a TV series and a movie? <laughs> I mean, how, you know, talk about comps for a little bit. Yeah, uh, sure, certainly. So, okay. Put simply, what a publisher would love to hear is at least three comps that are no more than three years old that show success, but not too much success, <laughs> right? Because, of course, if you say, it's like, you know, the Da Vinci Code meets where the crawdads sing. Okay. All right. Look, those two books, you know, sold 50 and 80 million copies respectively or whatever it is. And it is not realistic to say this book will probably sell that many copies because it happens once every, you know, seven years or 10 years. So, but here for one thing I would say to clarify is I think there are two kinds of cops and both can be relevant. One is the editorial comps, 
and the other is the sales comps. So when you're talking as an editorial comp, it is then okay to say, you know, it's like this really, um, really successful book or movie in this way. Because what you're what you're saying there is not that it will sell the same number of copies. What you're saying is it, it moves in the same world as this uh, this book or movie. It it evokes similar themes. Um, it's for the people who enjoy this. Okay, that's your editorial comp. And there's a little more wiggle room there as far as what you use, right? But when you get to the sales comps, what publishers are trying to nail down is um, how do we evaluate this novel or this work of nonfiction as a commercial prospect, right? So it is just in, it, like the, the task we all take on that is almost impossible to do with a straight face is to say, I have a good idea what this novel is going to sell, right? It's We have to do it to run the business. But the truth is nobody knows. Nobody knows. Okay, so the best you can do is to say, let's discuss some novels that have something in common with it. Um, you know, an author with a similar background, set in a similar place, dealing with similar issues, similar tone, similar voice, something. And then let's take a look at what a small cross-section of those books that were successful, but again, not too successful, sold. And then let's extrapolate from that to say, if we were so lucky with this book, what could we afford to pay the author as an advance? So that's the whole equation they're looking for. Um, what's tough about it is, it might be obvious, but what's tough about it is even if your novel or your work of nonfiction has something in common with other books, if it was the same as them, you wouldn't bother writing it. Like that's just true. And it's hard to get around. So you want to find stuff that's close enough. Um, you want them to be realistic, but optimistic. And then you want to put them forward knowing that all you're really doing with that, you are not reducing your book so much. I mean, you are for the moment, but the purpose of it is just to help the publisher envision it as a commercial product. Now, in defense of publishers, I will say this. The authors are approaching the publisher to say, please give me money for the work I have created. <laughs> you are proposing a business venture, right? And there's nothing wrong with it. There's no reason to be ashamed of it. That is what you're doing. You could be Emily Dickinson. You could have written it and you could just leave it in the shelf and that's that. But you're choosing not to. You're approaching publishers and asking for their money and their support. So when you do that, I don't think it's untoward of publishers to say, help me envision this, right? One of the ways I think of editors is they're kind of like venture capitalists, right? With less money, but even so, what they're doing is they are looking around this, they're looking around at the project, the projects that are sent to them by agents to find business opportunities, right? And then like a venture capitalist, if they convince their their fund to to buy um, a company, then they'll probably install somebody as like the temporary CEO to help make it the best it can be before they maybe sell it to somebody else or whatever. Well, what the editor is doing is you're looking for this business prospect, you take it in and then you help the author. You become that kind of temporary CEO. You edit the book with them. You make it stronger. You maybe help them come up with a better title. You, you talk to your art department about the jacket. You talk to your promotion people about how to promote it, all of this kind of stuff. And then in the end of the day, you turn around and you're trying to sell it to somebody else, right? Now it's your project, just like it was the author's. So I think it is fair for the publishers to say, help me envision this, not only as a literary work, but as a piece of business, because you want it to be a piece of, like you, the author, want it to work as a piece of business. So I, I am completely sympathetic to the fact that they can feel constraining, they can feel difficult, it can feel frustrating when... Um, when you can't find the perfect comp, all that is true. But I, in hopes of explaining some of where the publisher is coming from, I would say all of that about comps. Mm. Well, do you like to see a few pages of manuscript when you get a query? Yes. So how much, how much then can you glean from the query and say five pages or however many pages you like to see? I mean, does that... Put, should that put you on track of what this is going to be? I mean, how much do you get from that? Is that a, you know, I mean, beginnings are, yeah. endings are tough. It's all tough, but. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So I think between the author's pitch and let's say at a maximum 50 pages, because that's actually what I have on the website is to send 
first 50 or so. It could be like the first three chapters or something like that, right? Between the pitch and those opening chapters, I do expect that in almost all cases, I would have a very strong sense of what the author intends. I know I don't have everything about what the author has achieved because the story might have plenty of secrets to be revealed and, and a wonderful ending and, and all, all these kinds of things. But if after the pitch and let's say the first three chapters, I don't feel attracted to this, I think that's fair. Mm -hmm. um, and I I understand the the thing that authors say regularly when their work is rejected based on a partial, they'll say, well, but the, the good part comes later. And I get that. But the truth is that I wanted to... I wanted to show your instinct right from the very beginning. And I don't, I think a good beginning is within every author's reach. They're not all the same. What makes a good beginning, but I really think it is possible. And if, it, even if you can tell me that the book's best moment came in the last chapters, I, 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 I believe you, but there's simply no way I can read all of everything, right? It's not, it's just not possible because you would, you would only, you know, you would never be able to, um, manage a list you know the number of queries that come your way so i do think authors should should be conscious of that that we're trying to we're trying to cobble together a sense of what their goal is and how we can help them if we can help them from that pitch and the first you know few chapters or so um but i will say i do think it gives you a very strong sense of what an author how an author views themselves and what their goals are hmm. With um, memoir, is it necessary for the memoirist to have finished the memoir these days, or or can it can it sell on a query letter and a book proposal or yeah. few, few chapters, fifty pages? Yeah. So in general, I view memoir as being more like fiction in that um, style is so important, right? There's no way to say I will write a beautiful memoir, right? You have to do it, but I do think. I do think it's possible for it to sell in proposal. Yes. Um, as an editor, I certainly have bought memoirs on proposal. Absolutely. Um, I, um, let me think when I, over the last handful of years as an editor, I published two memoirs, both of which I brought on proposal. Um, so it can be done. What, what is important though, is that the proposal makes clear the, what the story is, um, who the author is, where the story is going, and there should be some sort of sample that really does show how this book will feel. Um, if that is all there, I think I think it is possible. Yeah. Now, there's there are certainly things like celebrity memoir, which is a whole different category, right? That's much more just about their platform and their connection to their fans. But the two I bought were not celebrity memoirs, and and they spoke to me because in the proposal, the author was able to make clear to me. What was unique about their story? What was urgent about them telling the story? Um, and then the sample material showed me how they were going to turn that into memoir. And that was enough in those cases. So I think that's possible, yeah. Hmm. Okay, another question from a listener. So if a debut author has a well-received book from a traditional press, but either has no longer has their agent or never had one in the first place, is there ever a scenario where you'd want to work with that writer, even if their next manuscript isn't fully completed? Mm. Um, over the course of 23 years as an editor, I worked with only three authors who didn't have an agent. Um, and they each had unique scenarios why they didn't. Um, so I did it three times. But that's only three times in 23 years, which is not a lot. Um most of, I will say this: if if an author has a well-received book and they the and you would like to work with them as an editor, but they don't have an agent, there's a situation certainly where an editor can call an agent friend and try to make an introduction, and then you know say I'm really interested in publishing this person. I prefer they have an agent, and try to help them find somebody to take them on. So that does happen. But I, I mean, I in hopes that this is speaking to the the, the listener's question. I'll say this. Why a publisher prefers to work with agents and projects? There's a couple of reasons, and they they matter. They they matter a lot from the publisher's perspective. Number one, there's such a high quantity of projects coming into publishers that they need to err on the side of the agents at once. They just have to. Um, those relationships between editors and agents they exist for a reason. 
they they are um, they help editors sort through the material so that they're generally aimed at the ones they think um, have the most potential and they're vetted basically like this this agent whose reputation is on the line has you know has taken this author on and that tells the editor something right away right so that's important the other thing is throughout the process starting with the acquisition process but then including cover and promotion and all of this stuff the process will generally work much better if the author does have that agent um, alongside them and and a publisher is aware of this that the process could get out of hand if if the editor is having trouble explaining things to an author who um is worried he's being swindled or or taken advantage of or anything right so when i try to explain to uh, you know aspiring authors why we have this structure in place the agent editor thing what is the deal with this right well the way it works is this basically in its simplest form the author has at their disposal two experts but one of them is loyal meaning financially loyal to the publishing company right there's no way around that the editor can love their authors they can work so hard on their behalf they can try to help them in every way they can at the end of the day they work for the publisher and they 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 have to they have to do what the publisher needs the agent on the other hand only makes money if the author makes money right so that relationship is fundamentally different even if the editor and agent seem to be um a team they're not actually a team in that fundamental way and that's important because the agent can say no i'm not going to stand with the publisher on this one i think you're wrong and here's why and that's an agent's job part of the time so anyway my point is that if an author has potential and an editor sees it my guess is an editor would try to find a way to make that situation so that they can continue to work together um but would most editors be slow to sign up an author who has no agent yes i think so so would you take on someone who was traditionally published and their book maybe got awards or did well, but their next novel is not finished? Would you, is that something? Oh, might yeah, that, yeah. If that's the main heart of the question, the idea of like, if the next book is not a finished manuscript yet. Um, yes, I, I have definitely, I could definitely be interested in somebody who um, has shown that they can do it. And now they're just not fully there on their new project. In fact, in some ways, there's an upside to that for the agent because you now get to advise partway through to be like, listen, I think you're doing a wonderful job. I would suggest you you keep an eye on this or this as you finish it, right? Which might make the editorial work at the end even easier. So anyway, um, yes, if if somebody has proven that they have the writing chops to do what they're setting out to do, uh, I as an agent would find that encouraging. And I, I would definitely consider taking them on on a partial for their next. Hmm. Okay. What about ageism? Um, another question. Um, there are more and more debut authors um, who are publishing later in life. And yeah. is that, are, are they anomalies or is this something, I mean, do agents Google writers after getting queries to see how old they are and, um, or is it all about what's on the page? Um, I do think, I think that the trend you're saying, I think is right. I do think there is, I think there was a, I sense there was a slightly unhealthy uh, fascination for a time on publishing's part with younger authors, like meaning the younger, the better. And I, I don't think that's always true. You know, there can be talent at all ages. Um, but I do think there's been a really healthy um, sense in the last few years that um, there are a lot of uh, debut novels and debut work, debut works of nonfiction coming from older authors and they're finding success. So I think that's great. Um, do, uh, do agents Google an author if they've got the query? Probably. Yeah. But it doesn't necessarily mean you're looking for how old they are. You could be looking to make sure like, is this a person who has done anything that I wouldn't want to be associated with or, or have they been like, you know, um, serially you know represented like have they had 12 agents and i'm lucky 13 like <laughs> you know so there there are things you might want to know that i think are relevant but related to what you're asking i think is that it is definitely true that an agent is going to be conscious of and really curious about an author's platform now i don't want to leave your listeners thinking that means you better have 
you know, 100,000 Twitter followers and you better have been, you know, famous at one point of your life. It's not that per se. What it is, is for some kinds of books, um, some kind of way to reach readers is really useful. So if I publish like a journalist, I do want to know that they've been published with some prominence because that will help us promote the book when it comes time. So that that is one kind of platform. For an author, could it be that an author has a background that's really interesting? Like they were an actress, so they were known as that, and now they're going to be a writer. Sure, that's yes, because that is stuff to work with when it comes time to publicize the book. But it could be something much smaller. For example, um, years ago, I published a, a novel, with the first novel in a trilogy, and I published the trilogy by a guy named Justin Cronin. And the first book was a book called The Passage. And when we bought the book, he had been published twice. His books had won some awards, but the sales were very middling. They were they were literary novels that were very well received, but had not sold widely. And now he wanted to write this really kind of big maximalist commercial novel. It was like a vampire novel, like really high concept. So he brought this excellent writing to it and all this stuff. But you did look at his track and say, well, he hasn't sold yet. And so, you know, can we carve out the space here? His platform in many ways was relatively small, right? He had been well-reviewed. He had won a couple of awards, but it had never translated into sales. But when, when I talked to him and I asked him, coming off of that background, why did you write this? Like, I love this, but why did you write it? And he told this remarkable story and he said that he and his daughter, who was very young at the time, they had this, this um, tradition of going out. And he would run and she would ride her bike next to him and they would talk while they did their morning exercise. And they would make up stories sometimes. And he says, what, should, what story should we make up today? And she said, let's make up a story about a girl who saves the world. And he was like, he jokingly later was like, I was hoping maybe a girl who saves Connecticut. The world's kind of big. It seems a little ambitious. But he was like, okay, a girl who saves the world. And he started tinkering with like, how would I tell a story of a little girl who saves the world? And it turned into this thing that he just kept going and going and going. That is not a platform per se, but it was his purpose in writing the novel. And I will tell you, this is, the, this is the truth. When we went to publicize that book and we finally put it on sale, that story was so present mm. in our marketing because we wanted to show people like he did not come from a place of just trying to figure out what was commercial. He made a departure for a reason. This was that reason. And I remember reviewers and booksellers really warming to that. So what I guess I'm saying is we will check out who a writer is. What I think sometimes we're searching for is, is there beyond the story in the page, is there any story to tell? Because it's really helpful if there is. Mm. What about queries by um, MFA grads or someone who has no real writing background? I mean, what are you looking for in that bio and how important is the MFA? And what if a writer has, you know, is new to writing and, um, what do, you, what do you do about the bio? Yeah. Um, I've seen it work both ways for sure. I'm interested when somebody has gotten their MFA from a really good program, right? I'm interested because they have taken – in part, think about it this way. They have – I don't have to wonder how seriously they have taken this effort, right? Like they put in time and money to really be in that position to try to learn from somebody. So that tells me something about their commitment to to the art. Right. So that is worth something. And also, I do think that a lot of the great writers out there do have some education in writing. They have taken time to work on their craft and then shows on the page. So that's important. Um, but have I published people that have no formal training in writing? Absolutely. And would I take them on as an agent? Absolutely. It I do think so, you know, there's always this debate, can writing really be taught? To some degree, yeah. I mean, some things about writing can be taught. You know, certainly I think journalists can learn how to do their job better over time. And do I think novelists can learn new tricks that they didn't um, just glean from reading? Yeah, I think so. But do I think that's the only way to learn it? No. I mean, I think what will always be the way to, there's always two things to me that will always be necessary for any novelist, no matter how well-trained they are. One is reading other work. Right? Just reading, reading, reading will teach you a lot. The other thing is experimenting as a writer. You know, it's when you try something on the page and you'll realize, oh, that's really hard. I don't know how to do that. Like, I don't know how to evoke that kind of voice or I don't know how to get in the head of a character so different than me or whatever it is. And by experimenting, you learn where your boundaries are as a writer and where your opportunities are as a writer. So 
I'm okay with either one. I, I certainly admit that an MFA from a good program intrigues me, um, but I don't think it's necessary. And there's one more question that came in. Mm -hmm. um, okay, so somebody queries you, um, maybe sends you pages, maybe you read the whole book and you go, yeah. you know, off for me. Um, is, is it a forever closed door or can they come back to you with another project? And would you tell them you were interested in another project if you were interested in the writer and if you would you say nothing if you really didn't want to hear from them again <laughs> so um me saying no to somebody is not inherently a closed door um i actually was just having an email exchange with somebody the other day i turned down what they sent me it just it did not connect with me fully but i did see talent and imagination there and i did say i'll be interested to know what you do next if you don't find the right agent for this project and he wrote back to say, you know, if that's how it worked out, he'd be happy to send it. So I think that can really happen. I mean, there are times when you um, you don't fall in love with a specific project, but you see talent, right? And like we said earlier, it's like, I can't take a project on if I can't see how to get that project to the finish line where I think it's going to be ready for submission. I can't. It's wrong to the author, especially when another agent out there might see it. Right. So they, they deserve that opportunity. If I reject something, that is all that is, all that is, is me saying, I'm not compelled to take this project on at this time. So I, for now, I wish you luck. Um, but if an author came back to me, I would hope they would remind me, like I sent mm -hmm. you something, you know, a year ago, well, here's something new. Okay. As far as I'm concerned, great. I'll take a look. I can't, um, I don't think I would ever have a reason to reject something in a way where the message is, don't ever try me again, no matter what. I just don't see, I don't see the reason ever. for that. So, yeah. <laughs> so I'd be, I'd be open to hearing from somebody again if they try something new. So have you had the experience of liking the material, but then when you say, you know, talk to the, to the writer, you're like, it's not going to work. The, um, not yet as an agent, I haven't had that happen. I have had that happen. I had that happen sometimes as an editor. What, what it really came down to for me was this. When I would want to take a project on, I would want to speak to the author before doing so, right? And it was always important to me. Obviously, you would feel pressure to say what you liked about the project. I mean, why else? You know, you know that it's important for the author to hear that. And how else are you going to build a connection with the, this author if you don't? But it's also important to say things you need, things you know need improvement. Like you have to say some of that up front. You have to, you don't have to give them you know, three pages of notes in the opening conversation, but you need to say, I think you did an amazing job with this, this, and this. I do think if we were to work together, these things need work. That's my opinion. Here's why I think so. If an author hears the beginnings of those notes and does not take them well or agree, that is something that could make me think, oh, this isn't going to happen. Years ago, I had a novel come in my way from a very good agent. The novel was good, definitely grabbed my attention. I thought, oh, I really like this. And I thought the title was perfectly flat, right? For this really good novel, I thought the novel was not, the title was not intriguing at all. When I spoke to that author in hopes of acquiring the book, I didn't think it was a very controversial thing to say. I said, I think one thing, you know, one thing we should talk about if we're to work together is I think this book could have a much stronger title, much more attention grabbing title. And I'll never forget, he said, no. <laughs> and I thought, oh, this is not, that's not, that's not very good. And there's nothing, which doesn't mean he had to agree with whatever idea I would come up with down the line, but to, for his initial reaction in this moment of acquisition to say, no, I thought, uh-oh, that's not great. So what, um, so if I like the material, but a conversation with the author told me that we were not on the same page about expectations or about what work lies ahead, yes, that could scare me off, which is probably a favor to the author as well. What happened with this? This author <laughs> told it to somebody else, didn't change the title, sold almost no copies. <laughs> now, but here's the funny thing: I won't say who it is. In a very different vein, he went on to become quite well known and successful, but not with that novel. So the talent was real and right. it was there. But I, I definitely had that feeling of like I don't think we're going to be a good pair, even though I admire his talent, and uh, so. That's how it ended. 
Well, my goodness, we're at the end of our time and I could talk to you all day, but I need to let you go. But before I do, is there anything, yeah. any any advice or any tips or any pearls for the uh, authors listening that we... Uh, um, yeah, sure. So I'll go back to that. Um, to give it one piece of advice, I'll go back to that Justin Cronin story um, to say that when you're pitching, you know, when you're when your work is ready to be pitched and you're going out to agents, um, certainly describe the book, follow the agent's rules of submission, like do those things, sure. And then to me, one of the things I always really look for is tell me in that note, you know, in, in those few paragraphs of your pitch letter, tell me why this book matters to you, why it was worth your time and effort, and why you are the person who has to write it. I do think that really matters. And it doesn't matter if it's nonfiction, memoir, fiction. Tell me why we all know it's an, an, an incredibly illogical thing to take the time to write a book on spec, right? Without, without anybody paying you to do so. It's crazy. And people still will always do it. Tell me why you did and tell me why you're the person to publish this book. That, that, that's my best advice. Mm, good one. Thank you so much. You, you've just been a great delight and, and great to talk to. So thank you. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Thanks to all of you for taking the time to listen and a huge thanks to our Patreon supporters who helped make this show possible. I should also say I have a Substack page called Pen on Fire, where I talk about writing and include more from authors and agents that didn't make it onto the show. Thank you to Travis Barrett, who does our music and sound editing. And by the way, if you like the music you hear on the show, you can find an album's worth of typewriter music on Spotify. Search out the artist, just my type. Travis also has other music on there under his name. You can access our archive of shows, 25 years worth, at writersonwriting.com. And if you want to get in touch with us, email writersonwritingpodcast at gmail.com. You can reach Travis Barrett at travisbarrettcreative at gmail.com. Thank you for listening, and remember, stay in the chair.